Hello and welcome to Traeger Method Podcast, episode 31. I am your host, Jason Traeger. My guest today is stand-up comedian Amy Miller. You might think, well, why do you have a stand-up comedian on the Traeger Method Podcast? I thought this was supposed to be about punk. We don't want to hear any stand-up. I mean, there's stand-up comedians have a million podcasts they could be on. Why do you put one on this? To which I say, well, fuck you. Who the fuck are you to tell me what I should do with my podcast? I mean, really. Asshole. Sorry. But seriously, the nerve. I mean, where do you get off telling me what my podcast should or shouldn't be? It's the Traeger Method podcast, for fuck's sake could be anything I wanted to, plus, you ignorant imbecile, Amy Miller, my guest, has a punk rock background anyways. I mean, she wasn't just born telling jokes to drunk people. I I like to think that I was at the same shows as Amy when she was, you know, 11, 12 years old coming to Gilman Street. I probably probably saw her there when she was seeing her brother Jason Bebout's band Sam I Am or Isocracy she talks about growing up with Jason she talks about life in El Sobrante hotbed of Bay Area music home of she doesn't mention it but Les Claypool from Primus Kirk Hammett from Metallica Isocracy, her brother's band. He was in that band. And Sam I Am. And of course, there's Al Sobrante, drummer of Isocracy, and Green Day's first drummer. Al Sobrante took his name from El Sobrante. I don't know if this factoid makes Amy more or less punk, but Mike Durnt from Green Day used to be her boss. Used to tell her not to swear. She'll tell you about that. I met Amy in, oh, I don't know. I don't know exactly what year it was, but uh, 2011, maybe. I was doing stand-up comedy here in Portland. She moved up. And we were we became close friends. She's a absolute, absolutely hilarious person. Check out all her stand-up. Check out her podcast, Who's Your God? Look at her, buy her album, Solid Gold. Support Amy Miller. She is the best. Absolutely hilarious. And a person of high character, which you don't find a lot of people in stand-up who are both hilarious and people of, of high moral character. You don't find a ton of those. You might think you would, but you don't. She's... I'm a huge fan of her as a human being and as a person. I hope that comes through in this, in this conversation. I know it will. Uh, if you don't know Amy, like I said, f- seek her out. Seek out her work. Not her personally. Leave her alone. But uh, seek out her work. Comics, you know, have been... In this, it's been a major dry spell for com- comedy during this uh, pandemic. It just came to a screeching halt. When it does pick up again and you can see live comedy, if you see Amy Miller's name on the marquee, in the paper, on the internet, go see her. Don't deny yourself the opportunity because you will laugh. And if you don't, 
Well, then you're a fucking asshole. I don't know why I'm so salty. Like, I'm, I'm talking to somebody. I don't know who this is that I'm just cursing out. It's okay. It's okay, Jason. I have rage, you know. I just have a rage inside me. I don't know why. No, I don't. I mean, I do, and I don't. Um, yeah, okay. I'm just going to... Uh, you know, it's funny. I just thought of something. A listener, who I won't name, but a, a kind listener who I appreciate very much for having listened, um, actually asked me, like, what what is the... Uh, What's the idea behind all the pauses in your introductions? And he even said, like, I know I'm not criticizing, I'm just curious. And I thought to myself, you know, that's just the way I speak, because I'm, I'm speaking ex extemporaneously. And the pauses are not, you know, I don't, do, I don't pause out of a deliberate affectation. I'm just thinking... And these are the spaces between thoughts. And I don't want to fill them up with a bunch of ums and ahs and whatever. And then I was thinking, you know, when I, it just occurred to me just now. Like this, again, very extemporaneous. I'm just speaking off the top of my head. That's what extemporaneous means, essentially. I used to get that same question in comedy, or people used to comment about that a lot when I did stand-up comedy a lot. I still do it, I guess, you know. I'm not pursuing it as some kind of a career, but, you know, comedy is always there. You can go to an open mic and do it anytime. I may get booked on a show again in the future. I did comedy for, you know, seriously for maybe 10 years or something. It doesn't, you know, comedy is a practice you can just do. You know, I like that about it. But when I was doing it a lot, people would often comment on the fact that I would have so much silence and space in my comedy presentation they'd say it's so it's so brave that you can do that that you can just have silence they say why do you do that you know what is the idea and i said well it's because i'm thinking i'm on stage thinking and silence to me is just as important as sounds you know that the the two create one another like you have to have I used to think about that, like the space between words and ideas is just as important as the words being said and the ideas being expressed. So that's just a thought. I wanted to. I just it just brought me back to to comedy, and that maybe that's just my style. That I I um that I'm okay with the silence. Okay, now I can admit I am being a little, I'm paying too much attention to the pauses. All right, here is my conversation with Amy Miller. Enjoy it. Find quality artwork for free. It's nice to see you. Great to see you too. I love you, California. It's what your mug says. Oh yeah, it's a special edition mug for the fires. Oh, that's it's so... some sort of sad Smokey the Bear situation. 
So you're a California native, right? Yes. Where were you born? Are we going? Just, oh my god, I'm it's excited. Happening. It's loose. Of course it's loose. You're an artist. Um I was born in San Francisco proper, uh which is interesting. I always like if I'm doing shows in San Francisco, I like to say that because almost nobody is from there. So they're like, woo. And then I'm like, but don't worry, I grew up in the East Bay. I'm not a loser. (laughs) (laughs) I think I know one person who was born in San Francisco, my friend Kathy. But other than that, yeah, you might be the only one. I'm so I was talking to some friends about this. I was so fascinated by the process because if you lived in El Sobrani, like my mom did, why would you get a doctor in like the um, sunset like what if I, I I could have been born on the bridge but then I talked to a couple of friends who live in the East Bay they did the same thing they're pregnant right now and their doctors in SF I'm like sounds risky to me but I made it I was born at like 6 a.m. so I think there was no bridge traffic <laughs> nice did you ever drive in the Bay Area during uh, lockdown when there was like no cars on the Bay Bridge a little bit yeah I think my brother who I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, He's still in the East Bay proper. Um, My sisters have since moved a little bit further out, but I only really visited him like one time because he was taking lockdown very seriously, which is great. Um, But yeah, it was great. Even that stretch because he lives in Richmond, that stretch on 80 that it's, it doesn't matter. It could be Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning. It's always, you come over that hill, you know, past Albany, and around the bend and then you stop like the, it's just parking lot. Yeah. Going off to all the three different freeways. It, there's always traffic. And I remember there wasn't on that visit. And I was so amazed because it's without fail and it's covered with tire marks from people who don't realize that or forget. And they come around that bend <laughs> and then all of a sudden they have to slam on their brakes. Screech. Yeah. I remember like I was talking with Martin living in Oakland, driving over to San Francisco. He's like, it literally took me 12 minutes to drive from like East Oakland into the city. Yeah. That's so nice. Or maybe they're, maybe they're slamming on their brakes to just enjoy the beauty of the city and the coastline. (laughs) So before we get into your biography too much and uh, talk about your Bay area punk, uh, stuff. Um, well, actually, this is Bay Area Punk. Do you know adjacent. What, do, do you know what day this is? No. It's May 4th. Which well, is, I know it's a Star Wars thing. Right. But it's also the birthday of Mike Durnt of Green Oh, that's hilarious. Your old <laughs> boss. I found out about that just, just before we started talking. I was looking at Instagram and there was somebody posted something about that. And I was like, isn't he one of the guys who owned Rudy's Can't Fail yeah. Cafe? Yes, a distant boss because uh, there was there were a few owners and some more involved than others. He obviously was more of a silent partner. Um, but, you know, I mean, he did like buy into this weird. Uh, sometimes I don't want to shit on Rudy's because I have so many wonderful friends from that experience still. And, uh, you know, those times in your life and you're like, early to mid twenties when you're waiting tables are like so fun in a way and magical. Uh, it's like a second college, you know, that, but also fuck them. Like (laughs) our boss was terrible. Mike was not that involved, except I do remember that there was like one time where, you know, they, they always struggled with, do we want to have like a family friendly 
diner or do we want to have a punk diner? Because there's there's a diner here in L.A. and I can't remember what it's called um, where like, you know, everybody has tattoos and the service is terrible, but they embrace it. And then their T-shirts say, like, we don't give a fuck what you want or something like it's very like in your face. Uh, but Rudy's was also like into selling their own merch. And, you know, they didn't know if they wanted to be that punk diner or be Disneyland, basically, for for Green Day fans, um, many of whom would travel a very long way, like from Japan and just sit and drink soda all day. And we're like, Mike's not coming. You know that, right? <laughs> like- that was exactly what I was like, picturing <laughs> Japan, a table full of Japanese tourists. going. Yeah. And we're like, I mean, I don't care how long you stay. It'd be great if you ordered food. So at least I can make money on this table. But like, whatever, you know, they're just drinking soda. And then eventually we're like, you know, he doesn't come in very often every once in a while, but it's very random <laughs> and chances of seeing him are almost nothing. Um, so, oh, so the one involvement I do remember Mike having aside from occasionally stopping by and having notes was that he wanted us to stop swearing on the job and he wanted to institute like a soccer card system where like if you said fuck, you get like a red card uh, like and I was like, what's happened to you? Like, this is the least punk thing I've ever heard, I guess, for the kids in there. And I'm like, How? well, I'm not saying fuck to children. You know, we're just like chatting behind the bar or whatever. Like, this is crazy. Uh, I mean, the whole situation there was so unfair. Our manager was extremely sexist. Like, I was one of two people that didn't have visible tattoos. You know, I was just like a earnest, good waiter. <laughs> like I just worked really hard and that's not very cool. But then like, you know, our boss paid the women so much less hourly than the men. And it was just a whole nightmare. Um, but yeah, occasionally Mike would come in and we had to be on our best behavior, which I guess meant not saying bad words. <laughs> How did he know there was an issue with foul language in the restaurant if he was never there? He just assumed <laughs> I think the one time he was there, oh, this was funny that he heard some people swearing because we would hang out. I mean, that's all that's what you get from those jobs is you get to hang out with your friends and like you can still do a good job and chat, you know. Uh, But he said at my country club, this is a system that they use where they don't allow the employees to swear and then they'll get penalized if they do. Are you serious? That's like an actual thing that he said for real. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. God. And then for people listening who don't know, it's like it's a it's a clash themed diner. You know, it's a great idea in theory. A lot of the menu items have um, like clash references. The food's very good. Um, you know, they do like dollar paps. And so they just could never figure out like who they wanted to serve the most because it's Emeryville. Right. So we're getting Pixar for lunch. That's a whole crowd. We're getting like late night alcoholics all the time. So we're open late and had dollar beers. We also got Sunday church crowds. So like old black ladies in like beautiful hats, you know, and it's like, who do you want to make the hat? They just could never figure it out. And then we have all these Green Day fans and stuff. And it was just like it was just so mixed up. Uh, It made no sense. Um, And then they had I think their most famous menu item is the Shake and Jesse which was literally named after it's a milkshake with Guinness in it and coffee. And there, I guess, had been a guy that worked there 
who was a severe alcoholic and he would show up with the shakes for brunch and make himself this milkshake that had a little booze in it, a little coffee, a little sugar to get through his shift. And they were like, isn't that fun? <laughs> we'll call it the shaken Jesse. And it's like, I mean, it sounds dark to me, but it was a very popular milkshake and it is very delicious as much as I hated making milkshakes at that place because we used like actual ice cream and so you have to like get down and like scrape it out and you know if you're serving brunch and every table wants five mimosas you know five coffees and five milkshakes you're like oh i want to fucking die it's a lot of scooping (laughs) and they don't tip on the drinks because people think like they just tip on food even though the drinks are difficult to make yeah they cost eight (laughs) dollars just like come on dude yeah exactly dude um, did you ever um, have punk luminaries come in there that you knew of? Um, I probably there were probably more coming through than I would recognize. I mean, you know, mostly I would probably recognize people that were somehow closely affiliated with my brother or who I met through him or like the AFI guys would come in uh, quite a bit. Um that was probably the biggest one. And then occasionally Mike. Um, and I'm trying to think who else, you know, Jesse Michaels. Jesse really runs kind of under the radar. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, you know, more people kind of worship him than would recognize him in public, which I which I experienced firsthand because I worked at a video store with him and we would have these kids come in in Op Ivy T-shirts who are like, you know, 12 year old kids from the neighborhood and like not know who was checking their videos out at all because in their mind they're also like why would you why would he be working here it's very out of context but huge rock star and why is he working at a yeah rental place <laughs> yeah my favorite my favorite rock star true artist walked away from the money he's i have so much respect for him oh yeah he's such an awesome guy in general just in every way so what years were you working at uh rudy's uh, about, I would say, let's see, I was there for like two and a half, three years, maybe like, Ooh, this is tough. 2004 to 2007, something around there, maybe five to eight. Yeah. Well, mid two thousands are a little bit of a blur. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I had multiple serving jobs. And then for a while, I was like working for this startup, but working at Rudy's at night. So it's all kind of a little bit blurry job wise in that era. But yeah, around the mid 2000s. So what year? Um, OK, so you grew you grew up in Oakland. That's that's where you you were born in San Francisco and you grew up in Oakland. So I grew up as a little kid in El Sobrani, um, which um, is more of kind of a a hub for, oh, I mean, a lot of people in the punk scene lived there in El Sobrani. right? Isocracy, they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, my brother lived with me, obviously. <laughs> and then. Tell, well, uh, tell us who your brother is. Your brother's oh, Jason Bebout. He's Jason Bebout, yeah, of Isocracy and later Sam I Am, still Sam I Am. Um, and so, like, Marty, who's his best friend still to this day, uh, was in Isocracy. He also lived in El Sobrani. Um, uh, I think several of the Green Day guys were living there at the time. There's also a uh, early 80s period where, like, most of Metallica lived in El Sobrani. And, and a lot of it, I think, was centered around um, De Anza High. 
which was just a few uh, blocks away from our house where we grew up. So I lived in El Sobrani until I was 13. And then um, I don't often say that unless people are from the Bay because nobody knows where it is. Right. Where is it in relation to Oakland and... Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's east on 80, basically. Um, so if you follow along the bay and, you know, just past Richmond, basically, um, it borders the San Pablo Reservoir. So if you can also like El Sobrani is also very close to like Arinda, if you go through the hills past the reservoir. Arinda is pretty fancy. What's El Sobrante like? Uh, not fancy. <laughs> Um, El Sobrante is an uh, unincorporated town. It's small and strange. It borders Richmond and San Pablo and, you know, Arinda and stuff on that fancier side of the reservoir. Um, it does not have its own police department. Um, it like we would just have county sheriffs. Um, it's mostly like working class. Well, at that time, it's it's changed. You know, a lot of people. Now there's like Berkeley pre- professors who live in El Sobrani because it's a reasonable drive and you can get a house for much cheaper and stuff like that. But at the time, you know, working class, a lot of white trash, but also very diverse um, single family homes, a uh, couple of liquor stores, <laughs> you know, really not much, but it's it's tiny. So like anywhere we would go to the movie theaters or you know, my siblings all went to De Anza. You're going at that point into Richmond or into Pinole. Like there's just not much in El Sobrani. I actually just found out that Thrift Town closed, which broke my heart. What's like Thrift Town? Thrift Town is the best thrift store in the universe. There's one in El Sobrani and one in San Leandro. And it's just massive and super cheap. Mm. So many treasures. Um, one of the few like great businesses in El Sobrani and didn't make it through the pandemic. So sad. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, it's also a beautiful place. There's a lot of eucalyptus. Um, there's, uh, you know, a, a creek that sort of runs through that neighborhood where I grew up. There is a fancy part of El Sobrani called Carriage Hills, which is like literally just up the hill, but that's more like a McMansion kind of people um but yeah it's just a lot of people on meth i think looking back (laughs) uh we lived in sherwood forest um which is not as magical as it sounds um and then like my church growing up was sherwood forest free will baptist um yeah it's a it's a weird place so i lived there until i was 13 and then all my siblings went to deanza i then moved to redding california with my mom and my sister and I went to high school there. Although I, I never really uh, went full bore. We hated that we had to move. We hated, we had to leave the Bay. So my sister and I would like, she had her license already. We would come back all the time and then spend like most of our summer in the East Bay. Mm. So I never really identify with Reading that much. Although I think, I got a lot of good things out of it. And I still have close friends from high school. It was a huge culture shock. I came back, went to Berkeley at 17. And then so between the years of like 17 and whenever I moved to Portland, uh, you know, I lived mostly in Oakland. So it's where I consider my home. I think, you know, there's all these things that go into like, what is your home? It's like, where have I spent the most time? 
Where did I come into myself? Where did I have the most jobs? Where did I have the most relationships? You know, and where do I visit when I am like, quote unquote, going home? That's all still Oakland for me. But if anybody, you know, I meet out in the world who asks me where I'm from and I say Oakland and they're from the Bay, then I can get more specific and say, well, I grew up in El Sobrani. And they're like, that's a terrible place. I'm so sorry that happened to you. (laughs) (laughs) What was the cultural shock like between El Sobrante and Reading? What was the difference between the places? Well, Reading, I mean, still to this day is very conservative. It's actually more conservative than ever because now it's sort of owned by this megachurch called Bethel. Um, Bethel was a pretty big church when I was in high school, but now they just have so much money that now they like are property owners in Reading and they have multiple churches, I think. Um, and, you know, there have been sort of iconic local businesses that were about to close and I guess Bethel like buys them. And so it's like this whole creepy thing. It's very white. Um, it's much closer to a Southern Oregon town yeah. than the Bay Area or even Sacramento. And it's only, you know, two hours from Sacramento. Right. Yeah. And, you know, an hour from Chico. But it's just it's a gorgeous place. There's several lakes. Most people most people only know Reading from, you know, a, a pit stop off I-5 going up to Oregon. Yes. Um, but it is absolutely gorgeous. There's so much nature. Mount Shasta is very close. Whiskey Town Lake. Um, so for those reasons, it was really nice. But otherwise, it was just, you know, I, there was like one black girl in my class Um And it was just, it was so different. And because I was in a lot of advanced classes, um, you know, everybody I knew, their parents were doctors. I mean, they still are pretty much unless they're retired. But uh, so it was weird. I was very much like the only like not rich kid in my social group. Um, And uh, even going up there as a religious person, it was like, it was like a next level (laughs) Christian-y. Tell, tell us about your religion. You mentioned you were uh, a member of the congregation of the Free Will Baptist Church in El Sobrante. So picture, p- paint a picture of your home life. You're living with Jason, we, we talked about earlier, in El Sobrante. What's your age difference between you and he? It's quite a bit, isn't it? Ten years, yeah. Ten years. Yeah. Um, so he's, what, doing isocracy, Sam I Am, and you're a 13-year-old 12-year-old, whatever, going to church? Was the family religious or did you find that on your own? Yeah. um, No, my sister and I kind of found it on our own. So the way that the thing the church would do is they would like, you know, recruit kids in the neighborhood. They'd bring around this van and and offer to take your kids to church. And um, they tried with all of us. I mean, Jason was a lost cause. I think my older sister went like maybe a few times. It wasn't for her. She later became Mormon, which is weird. not anymore, but my clo- sister is closest in age to me. Um, and I really took to it. <laughs> we were going to church all the time and going to youth group. And, um, it was very funny because that was like, you know, the start of Gilman. I had this idea that there was like somewhere my brother went, so you can hear my cat screaming at me. Um, somewhere my brother went every night that according to my youth pastors was very evil uh, and I didn't like fully understand it, but I know that we were praying for him as a church uh, and his soul. Um, So I didn't see him a ton. I mean, 
I shouldn't say that. Like he he parented me more than my parents. So he was around at least that much. Um, but, you know, he was also at Gilman all the time getting fucked up on drugs and playing music, uh, which seems more fun than what I was doing, which was going to a very conservative Baptist church in the middle of the East Bay. Um, but, you know, that was really comforting for me and my sister. What, what did you like about it? What did you find comforting? Well, there were adults there that gave a shit about us, you know, and our safety. <laughs> and uh, there were kids there we could play with a lot of activities. I mean, our parents were drunks and they were and they worked a ton. You know, they're like working class drunks. So um, it's not like we would have been like in soccer or anything like that or going taking ballet. All the activities I ever did were through the church. So I went to summer camp. I did youth group. I would play softball and volleyball and go to, you know, Great America and like all these things we wouldn't have done without the church, which. Um, you know, I am grateful for that part of it, uh, traumatized by other parts. But <laughs> What was the traumatic parts? Well, um, you know, I think just being seven years old and constantly feeling like I'm going to hell uh, or that my entire family is going to hell, which they did tell us, by the way, that wasn't. <laughs> so you discovered church on your own at age seven? Younger than that. I think we first went probably like, I mean, I went to preschool at that church. Cause I was like already reading at three years old and, and public school wouldn't take me. So they were like, Oh, well you can go to this preschool. So yeah, like as young as three, I was affiliated with that church. And then my older sister as well. We went to school there. Like it, it was my elementary school, you know, for, from preschool to sixth grade. Uh, <laughs> so I was just always there. Were, was your, were your parents, into it or did they think it was weird or did, did they take you there or did you just have to find your own way or the church provided that i have not always i've never gotten like a full answer from my mom i think because i'm always surprised too that they were paying for private school and it wasn't a ton like it's not a good private school <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean my teachers weren't even like Credited, yeah. No, not educated as teachers at all. They were just people from the church. It was a mess. Um, just being indoctrinated in a, at a madrasa. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it was just convenient, and since and it was babysitting, like the public school wouldn't take me till I was five, um, but I was like ready for school. Um, they thought, and I don't really know the church part. I think they thought was weird, but. Why are you screaming at me? I have to let her out. I'm so sorry. Just no, one no second. No problem. Got a screaming cat. We got to take care of her. Okay. So I think to them, uh, of all the crazy things your kids could be doing, church was probably the best one. <laughs> um, and they just weren't really around. So my brother and... um older sister didn't even graduate from high school. They like never went to school. Uh, so I think, I don't know. They just thought if church is their thing, what are we going to do? You know, I mean, they weren't around really. So it's kind <laughs> it's of a godsend. To, uh, I mean, play on words, but a godsend to the parents. I mean, when you think like if you're just kind of working all the time and drinking when you're not working and you got all these kids and then, yeah, you're into church. It's like daycare, social activities, all these things that you have sought out on your own. It's pretty much the miracle. Yeah. And as I always say, you know, 
Sunday mornings when football's on. So that's really good timing for my dad. <laughs> um, and they also they were the people that showed up when my dad died. Um, you know, they brought by food. They gave me and Rebecca money like, you know, churches show up for shit like that a lot of the time. Um, so even though he never went there really and they didn't have context for him, it's just and that's what churches are supposed to do. Yeah, mutual uh, aid. It's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, what year did your dad die? How old were you? Um, I was nine, so it was uh eighty nine. Yeah. Yeah. Um and yeah, we just had friends there and it was walking distance. I mean, it's a block away. It's like they couldn't have stopped us from going, really, you know, and even when church was closed, we would go there and use the playground and ride our bikes. And it was just really a hub for us. And it was just so much safer in theory than other things we could have been doing. But then, of course, we found out much later that our youth pastor was molesting a lot of children, not of us. Um to my knowledge, I mean, my sister says he didn't get hurt. <laughs> um, so, yeah, fuck him. He's in prison now. But it's like that kind of shit. You know, there was a dark underbelly to that. He's actually church. in prison from this. Yes, wow. uh, he's in prison in Oklahoma. Well, he also he it was a it was a very like Catholic priest situation where one day he just was gone. Like he was he moved and we were like our youth pastor that we spend all this time with is just gone. No explanation. He went to Oklahoma and now we suspect maybe he had gotten caught, which is like such a sick fucking thing for the church to hide. Went to another free will Baptist church in Oklahoma and school. And then eventually with the help of uh, parents, I think something like 40 kids came forward in Oklahoma saying that he had lost them. So, Lord. yeah, so he's in prison for the rest of his life. <laughs> um, so that's sort of, sort of some of the more traumatic things and just the constant like your parents are going to hell, your brother is going to hell, you know, and you're and you will, too, if you, you know, watch rated R movies or listen to the kind of music your brother makes. <laughs> if, you, if you listen to Isocracy, you're going to hell. 100%. I'll never forget. I went to um, my first day of third grade. I looked so fucking cool. You know, I've always like adored my brother. But part of it's the age difference, I'm sure. And he did so much for me. But like, even though the church was telling me this was really evil, I like I thought it was cool what he was doing. You know, I thought the 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 posters in his room like kind of scared me, but they were also interesting. And, you know, the funny sm smelling smoke, but <laughs> like I, he was so intriguing. And so and and we were proud of him, especially like when he started to tour a lot. And and of course, when Sam, I am like got on TV and stuff like I, I was I loved it. Um well, some parts of it I hated. I'll get to that. But so the first day of third grade, uh, you know, that would make it like 87 or something. I have an acid wash skirt that's ruffled. So it has like three tiers of ruffles. So fucking cool. Socks, you know, like folded over with like some cool um, L.A. gear or whatever. And I wore an isocracy T-shirt. And the T-shirts they were making at that time were just screen printed um, like forest animals. There was nothing that it was like looked like it was for children, but it did say isocracy. And they knew that it was my brother's band. So like they made me change and promised to never wear that to school again. <laughs> but I have a picture of that day and he's just about to go on tour. I think his first European tour and we're like, 
hugging in front of the driveway and I'm going off to school. And it's like, I mean, it's such a special photo, but the layers to it. <laughs> Amazing. You still have that photo? I do. Yeah. Somewhere. I think my mom has it. And I remember there was this feeling of dread that she had too. Cause you know, your teenagers going to Europe and you don't know what that's going to be. And, uh, you know, it was scary. And I was, felt like I was going to miss him. And I still remember like the gifts he brought back for us and stuff. Like it was a very big deal, <laughs> but yeah, they, they, they sent me home to change. So rude. <laughs> Like, this is my first day outfit. Do you know how long I've been thinking about this? Of course. It's huge. Oh, side ponytail. It's like perfect. <laughs> huge. Incredible. So so um, when you became a teenager and you, you weren't, did you go to punk shows? You weren't a punk. You were still a Christian. No, I, well, Sam I Am was my first first show I ever went to because my mom. Yeah, my mom took us all to Gilman once when we were pretty young, which is normal for Gilman. There's kids there. Um, but I don't think she was quite prepared. <laughs> I just remember like my sister getting kicked in the head or maybe it was my sister's friend. I think there's another person that like their irresponsible parents let them come to Gilman <laughs> with us. Um, so I remember being kind of terrified. It's like going to your first sporting event, you know, where you're like, why is everybody yelling? Like you're just so little. And it was so scary, but really, really fascinating. And I just remember even as a little kid feeling like proud of him. So, so technically Sam, I am the first band I ever saw. Um, Santana was my next. <laughs> also at Gilman. <laughs> <laughs> no, at the shoreline. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I didn't go to punk shows. I mean, I listened to Christian music and and just pop and R&B, you know, whatever. You know, I was very into like early 90s R&B, but Emory Carey, of course. But I always felt guilty about it. Like I wasn't supposed to be listening to secular music, but I was exposed because thankfully my older siblings were cool and my older sister had many musical phases. She, she listened to reggae for a while. She got really into punk. She started going to a lot of Fugazi shows. Um, so I was like aware of all this stuff, but always felt bad about it. <laughs> you know, what was your uh, favorite Christian band? Were you into jars of clay? Loved jars of clay. Yeah. I loved the Newsboys. Loved DC talk, Loved Stephen Curtis Chapman, Michael W. Smith. Um, I mean, so many people and we would go to I mean, when I was a preteen and younger, like those were my concerts. Really, we would go to Christian Music Day at Great America with our church group. And like, I mean, I feel like they were famous. I remember being in because Great America has an amphitheater where they do concerts and it would be like maybe the first four rows have people in them <laughs> and everything else is empty. And of course, every logical person is riding rides not seeing a concert <laughs> and I just remember thinking like they were so famous and this was like oh I mean life-changing I loved going to those concerts um but no I didn't really I mean to this day I honestly wouldn't say I've been to that many straight-up punk shows aside from well I don't know that's not true I'm not really thinking <laughs> Let's see. I mean, I've seen Sam. I am a lot. <laughs> uh, Do you ever see Off Baby? 
Never. No, I don't even think they were really on my radar. I, I wasn't fully aware of them and their impact, I think, until like I worked with Jesse. And then I would find out some of that stuff by being like, oh, my brother is Jason Bebout. And then kind of get the f- and same with Jawbreaker. Frankly, like I love Jawbreaker now, but um, it wasn't really until like they uh you know, Adam had a comedy club in the basement of his mission video store. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that Great I was like, oh, it was the best. Yeah. Last weekend, it was um, really some of the best shows. Um, and they would do sketch fest shows down there and stuff. It was, was such a good capacity of that room. Like 40 people, maybe 20, maybe 25. Yeah. yeah. And then some people standing against the back and it's a basement. So there's still all these like old VHS tapes and stuff behind the curtain and a little tiny bar. Um, yeah, that was awesome. But it, it wasn't really until then that I kind of put together like, oh, like Jawbreaker is a pretty big deal, huh? <laughs> you know, because there were comedians like Claire O'Kane and people like that who were like a little bit starstruck by Adam and knowing him. And because so many, I mean, I feel the same way about Billy Joe, like so many of these guys were always around or around enough that I'm like, yeah, I, they, I just don't have the same like music, like reverence for them in that way. Um, and now I do much more now, especially after, I mean, I went to the first Jawbreaker show back at the Ivy room uh, when my brother was booking the Ivy room pre like not even under the name jawbreaker, like secret of secrets, like pretty much people who know the band, like they were just like, can we do this? So it was even before their first announced show. Um, And I went with my boyfriend and my ex boyfriend. I almost just sent them together because I mean, Adam, Adam jumped on a plane like I was on the phone with my sister-in-law, Jason's wife. And she was like, oh, there's Strawbreaker show. And I was like, I think I need to send two people who aren't me because they're going to lose their minds. And then we figured it. I I think my ex Connor like scammed his way in somehow. So it all worked out. But I was like, honestly, if you two just want to go like this is I know that this is very special but I don't have the same connection to it. So just, you know, you guys will get along. <laughs> and then by the end of the night, it was like me at the back. And then I just see Connor who's like, I mean, you know how big Adam is and he's small. And then Connor's like, you know, 300 pounds, six foot six or whatever. And they're just at the front, like hugging each other. <laughs> um, so I have more reverence for all those guys now. Um, but yeah, I, I just I, I wasn't like a huge punk fan. I don't know if I rebelled against it because of the church stuff or because it was like family. <laughs> um, but yeah, I went every other direction. Hip hop, country, Christian music, top 40, you know, in you know, in high school, it was like I felt so guilty about listening to secular mu- music. I would really like keep it to counting crows and cranberries you know what i mean yeah uh, um and wasn't yeah, your boyfriend think, adam in a band a, like emo band yes what yeah were they called? and where were they from they're from uh mostly ohio and west virginia and they're called scenes from a movie and they had their 10-year reunion tour a couple years ago which i went on and didn't only go on honestly ended up being the primary driver of the van (laughs) 
because I don't sleep. And so I would just like drive through the snow with the U-Haul on the back while the band all slept, uh, which made me a hero, but also made me feel very old. (laughs) Just driving the band. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, seeing him play was so great. He's really, really good. You know, obviously I see him play bass around the house, but this was the first time I saw him do a bunch of live shows. And, you know, he's just so talented it's annoying he he knows how to do too many things but was that band like on the warp tour and stuff like that in the day oh yeah yeah big time oh yeah and i guess now that you now that you brought it up or i brought him up my ex connor was in many pop punk bands and so i have been to many of his shows and and sang on one of his records and sang in one of his bands Excuse so me? just what? so i forgot about that <laughs> what band is this <laughs> Uh, one band called Vitamin Party, <laughs> which is like a Berkeley staple, like like they would play at Blake's and shit, you know, like those Blake's shows, which were all ages were so fun. You know, when What's you're in college, it, it it's like a two level um, pub and restaurant on Telegraph. Berkeley. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. maybe like at, I'm trying to think like at Dwight, like a couple blocks from campus. Um, but they would do all ages shows, which like um, they still served us all under. I mean, everyone was drinking like that's how Blake's made their money. Yeah. Um, so he would play a lot there. And then later he was in a band called Collisionville, um, which had a, a member of the Ex-Boyfriends, which is another great Bay Area pop punk band that I absolutely adore. I've, so I've, I have been to many Ex-Boyfriends shows too. see that now I'm now it's all coming out. I guess I've been to a number of punk shows. <laughs> Um, but all great bands to check out. Uh, and yeah, I don't it's like I didn't absorb being a punk fan in the way that like my oldest sister did at the time. And she was actually going to shows. But I did end up dating a lot of <laughs> punk musicians, I guess, You're in which the is Bay Area. very cliche. Yeah, well, it's like. My brother is basically my father figure because my dad died so young. So it's like, you know, some people date their father. I date my brother. It's creepy, but (laughs) (laughs) but he gets along really well with all my boyfriends. That's pretty good. Yeah, Uh, Actually, Connor, that ex uh, works with him now at the bar that he owns with Billy Joe um, and they're great friends and they've played music together. So I'm like, whatever. (laughs) What's the name of that bar? It's called the Golden Bowl. And it's been in downtown Oakland forever, um, but it was closed for a long time. Did they do comedy there? Yes, they have. Yeah. Um, I think I might have done comedy there once. Yeah, they had a regular show for a minute that I I think I maybe did one or was supposed to, but I, I might record my album there, which I'm excited about. Let's get into your comedy. When, when did you start doing stand-up and what led you to doing that? Well, I started in 2010 on September 3rd, and I went to the Brainwash Cafe open mic. Classic. Yep. Very long running laundromat open mic in San Francisco on Folsom Street. And I I don't know. I kind of just got peer pressured into it by my friend Becky Wolf, who stopped doing comedy a year later or something. uh, And I stuck with it. I don't really know. There was kind of a lot of stuff going on in my life at the time in our family. I was having a little bit of a meltdown. It was a very low point for me. It was a low point for a lot of people. It's 2010 in the Bay Area. There was um, 
huge financial crisis. A lot of things were closing. People were unemployed. Um, not like this latest financial crisis where many of us got aid or unemployment of some kind. It was just like there was no money. There were no jobs. Um, people I knew were straight up just like committing suicide over money. Like I can't pay my bills. You know, it was a very dark time when I think of it, it feels very heavy. And then, you know, I, I like started going to these open mics and, um, it really like opened up this whole other world to me, gave me something to live for and a whole new community of friends. And I don't know, I never thought I would go more than once. It was just kind of a crazy experiment. And here we are <laughs> 10 do, years later. Do you think at all that your exposure to punk and the kind of get on stage and just do it uh, attitude that you were exposed to, that that had any influence on you taking the plunge? That's interesting. I don't know, because I had such intense stage fright. I think that was part of why I was always so impressed by my brother was his stage presence and fearlessness to do these things and to go on tour and like um, to create. Honestly, I don't I don't know. I think if anything, <laughs> well, I would say our family in general outside of the him actually being a punk and and by the way at this point like the most annoying kind of punk like <laughs> like very like first wave you know and it's like you're not the first wave actually because <laughs> they live in England but uh, I I sent him like the punk house Oakland photos have you been have you been following this no what is it my friend Elizabeth, who actually used to work at Rudy's um, for a long time, uh, she started this Instagram account called Punk House Oakland. I think that's what it is. Um, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably want to see it. And people send her like old photos and old Polaroids from um, shows and from and from the house. And she puts them up and then tags everybody and says like, oh, this is this person from this band. And it's really, really cool, beautiful idea. Just like a glimpse of that time. Um, but this is later. And so I, I, I sent it to Jason and he was like, fuck those early 2000s posers or whatever. And it's like, you know, he says some of these people are his friends. So maybe he doesn't mean it. But it, but he's very much a pioneer in that way where it's like, we did this, you know, and I and I do have a lot of reverence for Gilman and what they accomplished. Like, I think it's so cool that my brother was a part of it. And everywhere I travel in the world, I can say, like, if you're a punk fan, Gilman Street and to some extent, Sam, I am. And they'll know and be like, mind blown, you know, <laughs> didn't know you were related. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. So I don't know about the, getting up initially. I mean, I was still really terrified, terrified of being on stage. But I do think our family has this general like we don't give a fuckedness <laughs> um, about what other people think um, in a way that often is damaging <laughs> to us professionally. <laughs> I mean, like nobody in my family can have a boss, you know, like we're total fucking nightmares. We have a sort of a punk lifestyle as a family that it's like, don't let anybody push you around. Don't let anybody shit on your family. Um, stand up for what matters. Stand up for what you believe in. Um, give a shit about other people and like, don't back down. And 
I think I got a lot of those values from my brother, but also just sort of like the white trashedness of our family that, you know, my aunts are all fucking widows. Like there's like never been many men in my family. Everyone's just like so badass in a way. I mean, terrifying. <laughs> self to the point of terrifying. <laughs> I mean, we're Okies, you know, so it's I think maybe the combination of my brother being a punk and us being Okies and all of this together and just being scrappy probably has contributed a lot to my bravery in comedy. Not to call myself brave, but uh and to my content, but I don't know about me first getting on stage. Um, it was very, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard, uh, or I hope you've heard the episode of our podcast with Bobcat when we had Bobcat on and we talked a lot about this, that in this specific industry, go ahead. I was going to say, this is Amy Miller's and Steve Hernandez's podcast called Who's Your God? It's a great podcast. I'll have links to it and all that. And we'll talk about it at the end. But yes, go and on. you've been such a nice um, supporter and friend oh. and fan. And your episode is so awesome too. Listen to Jason's pod- episode. Yes, listen to my episode absolutely. But <laughs> it, listen to the whole episode to the whole podcast. It's a great, great podcast. But if, and if you like this podcast and you're into punk, like listen to the Bobcat episode. Goldthwaite, of course. I don't know what other Bobcat there is. <laughs> yeah, all the Bobcats in comedy. <laughs> but we talk about this because he is like Bobcat to me is is a fucking punk like the way he approaches his art and comedy and even though he's done these cheesy things like police academy or whatever for the most part he's made choices that he really stands by artistically he's said no to many jobs he is not motivated by money like he has a jesse michaels approach to filmmaking and comedy and we talked about like is that good? <laughs> like, are we dumb for approaching the business this way? And he's like, well, you know, you'll probably never be rich. I'm not really rich for like the jobs that he's had. And he's a genius. He should have all the money, you know, but uh, because that's not the main thing that motivates him. And because he will walk out of a job if he's working for an asshole and he will tell someone off and he will stand up for the underdog. Um those things are not very well liked in Hollywood <laughs> and in stand-up comedy, which which came as a big surprise to me early on because I thought like, oh, we're truth tellers. We're going into this job where, where we're supposed to be like the punk movement and say like, fuck the patriarchy, fuck authority. Um, we want to be artists and we want to have fun, live a happy life and tell our truth. That is not stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy is a capitalist fucking enterprise and it's so misogynistic and which obviously big problems with that in punk as well. Um, but, uh, not in theory. Um, and, Yeah, it it came as a surprise to me. And I learned very quickly, like, oh, no, they don't actually want you to speak up. Uh, They want you to do what you're told and tell your jokes and say thank you so much for having me, especially women. We're supposed to be very honored that we even got the microphone, you know. And um, so it was really, really cool having that chat with Bobcat because he's someone I look up to so much. And it's crazy that we're, you know, we know each other. I feel so honored by that. But he's like 
it's just, you know, you won't get a lot of the stuff that you want to do if you keep being a whole person with values, you know, because <laughs> uh, they don't like that. And we're learning this over and over, you know, and it's like, I don't know if you read this. I feel like I'm talking too much. No, it's wonderful. That's this is I wanted, that's okay. what you're here for. I want to hear you. <laughs> um, I don't know if you read that article about Scott Rudin, uh, who's been outed recently again as a monster. Yes. yes. Tell us about him, though, for people who don't know about him. I mean, he's a you know, he's a very well-known, powerful Hollywood producer who's put out a lot of cool shit, a lot of A24 shit, uh, Greta Gerwig films, you know, like he's cool stuff from Hollywood, cool stuff from Hollywood. He is a monster absolute monster. It's been open secret for decades. He screams at assistants. His assistants have killed themselves. Like, you know, so finally this exhaustive article comes out about him and all of these testimonies from former employees. And was it in variety? Um, I can't remember. Actually. Somewhere big though. Yeah. And it was pretty heavily covered. And so he stepped back from all of his projects and whatever said, I'm going to try to be better. Just a bunch of bullshit. But Two different comedians showed up in that article. Um, and one was Aziz and like fuck Aziz anyway, but uh, you know, that and Chris Rock that they like witnessed abuse like while they were meeting with Scott Rudin about their projects. And and I know that they're probably not the best guys and that money corrupts people so thoroughly, but whenever it's stand-ups, I just take it extra personally because I'm like, how did you go from like, yeah. I want to make people laugh to, I don't care if people are abused or I don't give a shit about anything like, or, you know, I'm, I'm Joe Rogan. And I think I know more than science, like, <laughs> you know, how does that happen? And like, yes, it's money and attention, but it just disgusts me. And, and, there is absolutely no chance I could be in a meeting with a producer. I mean, I wouldn't be in the room with Scott Rudin anyway. Uh, but, you know, and see them abuse a 21 year old assistant verbally and throw something at them and not say something and continue with the project. Like that is not a life I will ever live. And I am happy with that. And I'm proud of myself for that. It should be the baseline, though. You know, yes. like I'm not a hero, but so Bobcats always lived that way in this career and you know you miss out on a lot of money <laughs> but man what's i mean the trade-off though there's just not even it's not even an option you either have that in you or you don't you know to be able to watch something like that and not say a word and just keep going but you're not that way that's why i'm talking to amy miller because you're you're just well, not that person <laughs> and there's always some compromise right like there are people i adore and respect who write on and act on snl right now and they made a choice to go work for, I call him comedy, Vince McMahon. Like, you know, Lorne Michaels is not a good person. And so he's going to have Elon Musk on. And it's like some of the cast is not going to participate, but it's like, well, that's the job that you signed up for. You're working for an evil person. So you can still get your voice out there and write these sketches that are super progressive and have never, you know, happened on that show. And that's awesome. But we're always all compromising in some way. So it's those basic things that I think should be the easiest to respond to, right? You see someone get something thrown at their head. Don't work with that person. You know, we're busy compromising our values all the rest of the time. I mean, 
you know, I've been on tour and performed for people wearing a MAGA hat in the room and not said anything and just been like, I'm just going to do my set, you know, hope he doesn't say anything. And like, I mean, it's always a guy Um, (laughs) and, you know, performing for people that don't believe in the things that I believe, like are bad. They're bad people. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So there's so much compromise to even get an audience to get to perform that it's like, I don't know, at minimum, you can have you can stand up in the moment, I feel like. But people are cowards, Jason. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and I've seen my brother do that so many times over his career and personally and um, and, uh, you know, protect the family. And like, it's what he's you've seen him do what? Like stand up for something in the moment that Mm, was right. Defend someone. you know, be willing to get in a fight for someone getting grabbed at the bar. Me. Um, I mean, I actually thought he was going to kill that person. If we're being honest, Uh, (laughs) you got grabbed at his bar. Yes. When he was working at the Mallard um, on St. Pavel Avenue, uh, I was in there and like, it was a guy, like I kind of knew, like we had been chatting, but then he was getting very drunk and handsy and like grabbed my ass. And I told my brother as like a, cut him off get him out of here situation and then quickly turned into this guy might potentially die (laughs) Uh, reconstructive surgery yeah exactly (laughs) i swear to god in my memory it feels like he did that movie thing where his neck was against the wall and his feet were dangling like that's how (laughs) i like replay it in my head i almost felt bad like oh i should maybe i shouldn't have told him but also don't fucking grab my body um but yeah, I you know, even not protecting me, like he's taught his kids, even if it's not the most lucrative thing or the most popular thing, you have to like defend people who need it. Um, always protect your family and stand by what you believe in. And like, I mean, it is not a lucrative way to live, <laughs> um, uh, but it's, you know, I want to be happy too. so. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, what good is money if you can't look yourself in the face? You know, it's like, yeah, that's well, yeah, that's that's the I mean, that's the epitome of punk values as far as I'm concerned. Everything you've been talking about. So, yeah, you're a true punk. Well, thank you. I shower regularly, though. So (laughs) but I mean, you live your life that way, too. I've always had such great respect for you, too, even just in your art, like not putting all your eggs in one specific basket. It's just like, what is bringing me joy, you know, and how can I channel it at any given time? Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah. I mean, I think being adaptable when you're, and yeah, adaptability. And I mean, when I started doing comedy, when you and I met, it was because I couldn't afford to maintain my painting studio anymore. (laughs) And I had been like, just like, not having any fun working and not selling anything and then going, how do I pour money into this and yet get nothing from it? And then I remembered I had done stand-up and I was like, there's an art form that I can do. It doesn't cost anything to do. You just show up and do it. You don't need any equipment. You don't need anybody to buy it. You don't need, you just show up and do it. So I started doing it again. And I think you and I met probably a few months, six months, a year after that. Yeah. And, and even like your approach, you know, like, I mean, I think you're the funniest and like Adam, who is my boyfriend who managed that comedy club at the time, like helium comedy club, Portland. Yes. Like we always thought you were so funny, but a lot of time in the moment, it's not always working for the whole room, but the people that get it, get it. 
Um, I mean, do you feel like not to turn this around, but do you feel like growing up as a punk also contributed to like your approach to comedy and relationships and work and everything else? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, that's part of what this podcast is about is I'm not like a nostalgic person, but uh, I am trying to like figure out and kind of forensically take apart what of my values were twisted and, you know, and which ones were reinforced, which ones I need to sort of relearn and and remember now. Um, All that stuff is in there. It's a lifelong thing. You know, yeah, it's such a a deep uh, thing to be into. And definitely in comedy, um, I mean, one of the most specific things that I can think of that I took from punk was like being able to get up and bomb and just not care if the audience even hates you, you know, because in punk, there's a long tradition of bands that are there just to piss off the audience, you know, the punks. I mean, Black Flag, I think of as, you know, one of the most seminal punk bands and that half their career was just making punks mad at them for, <laughs> for playing like 10 minute long jams, you know, um, and having long hair and stuff. And so, you know, in comedy, when people would be like, oh my God, this is such a tough night, you know, but they didn't laugh. You know, in San Diego, if <laughs> nobody's bands, bleeding. Yeah, bands would get pulled off the stage regularly and beaten by the crowd, you know, and it, that was a totally not a normal thing like at every show, but it happened you know, many times, you know, that in San Diego, full blown fights would happen. So in my mind, it was always like, dude, nothing got thrown at me. Nobody punched me. Nobody stormed the stage. You know, I just did not get a ton of love. (laughs) (laughs) Or it would just take you a few minutes to get there. Um, I can't remember who you were opening for that. Adam always tells me this story of like, it was like a largely black crowd at at helium, which is doesn't happen a lot in Portland because there's not a ton of black folks there. But if they get a headliner that like has mostly a black audience, then everybody comes out. And then I would almost feel bad being on those shows sometimes because I'm like, I don't I wouldn't want to hear my white bullshit if I'm like out, you know, for my one night at the comedy club where they like booked someone that I like, you know, um, do you remember who you were opening for? I, I definitely I think he must be talking about when my very first hosting weekend ever at Helium was opening for RNSJ. Yes, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And the way he tells it is so funny. But just the that like you did end up winning everybody over like at some point, I think. You know, especially the ladies in the crowd were just like, he's so weird <laughs> and fearless. Like, we have to love it. And, and, and you're being filthy. So, yeah. like, <laughs> it's like a four minute pussy eating bit. And it's like, you know, and then everybody was on your side eventually. Like, I, I live I live for that shit. I swear that that weekend was, you know, whatever, five shows, whatever weekend is at Helium, five shows, six shows. And uh yeah, I remember that was almost every single set was that same way where it would start out the first two minutes. You're just going, all right, this might just not work. And then at around the five minute mark, you just the, the crowd would crack and go, OK, we get we give in. This guy is he's legitimately insane. <laughs> taken it to the, so, yeah, no, it, was, it was a very good feeling. And it definitely made me feel inspired, like doing that that, that weekend. I think also growing up uh, as a punk or adjacent is like you know, struggling as a comedian, uh, not just on stage, but in the lifestyle is like so tame, you know, like, uh, like being on the road is hard. Sure. It's hard for a lot of people, but you know, a lot of times I, I, at least I have a hotel room, you know, I can eat at the club. There's always like a meal. So even my poorest times touring, you know, doesn't compare at all. I mean, I I'll never forget like 
you know, we would we would sometimes just like run out of food because uh, it was the end of the month and our parents didn't have a lot of money. And, you know, we'd have to wait for the check to come in to like get go on the grocery run. And so like I remember Jason like riding his bike from El Sobrani to Gilman every night, like he would ride his bike and really only be eating like dry. He was always a vegetarian too, like since he was really young. Uh, dry ramen packets, like not like just, just eating crunching the noodles. Yeah, like without even maybe sprinkling the seasoning on top. And it's, he was just like always hungry. It's like after that point, I don't know when you are an adult and you have a job with a boss who's just an asshole or a racist or a misogynist. And you're like, I could walk out on this guy and I'll be fine. You know, I've been hungrier like I'm employable where my family's always like ready to work. I still don't have like pride about work in that way. Like I certainly have moments where I'm like, I feel like for my skill level, there are things in comedy that I should be able to do based on who else has done them. Yeah. Of course, nothing works that way because nothing's fair. Um, and so much of it is relationships that there's just gatekeepers who are going to be like, I don't like your vibe. Yeah, you're yeah. too mouthy, whatever. But um, <laughs> but I never, you know, yeah, this, the, that kind of struggle is like it's it, it's mostly fine. And you're just always kind of willing to like not work with someone if you even if you have that means you have to do a crappy job instead of like this great comedy gig because the person booking it is a dickhead, you know, like I think that those values have really stuck with me. And still, I mean, like two days ago, someone who's in comedy posted on Instagram, like, do you know a good house cleaner in LA? And I was like, I'll do it. Yeah. No, I love to clean houses. I love clean comedians houses. They're really bad at cleaning. And like, they're always so amazed by what I've done, but I'm like, I just, I just did it in a detailed way. (laughs) Like it's not that hard, but they feel more ashamed for me than I feel. And I'm like, I mean, work is work. I, I want to work. You know, I watch your kids. I'm watching Augie's kids this week. <laughs> like, Augie Smith, great yeah. comedian. Yeah. And uh, I'll clean houses. Like, I don't give a shit. I've never had that pride about like, you know, you just if you want to survive and especially on your own terms, because I am very employable. I could I could go back and work in tech right now, but I don't want to work for the grad. Yes. Thank you. I don't want to work for those assholes. You know what I mean? I don't want to write on someone's show. Like there's plenty of writing packets that come my way for like, you know, fucking Jimmy Fallon or whatever. I'm like, explain to people what a writing packet is. So um, a lot of the time to get staffed on like a comedy focused show, it could be late night. It could be fictional half hour, whatever. Um They'll send out a packet and you basically submit jokes, submit essays. Um, you can submit previously written material. Um, I did it not too long ago for the there's going to be a Beavis and Butthead reboot. Like that's that's someone I can get behind working for. You know what I mean? It's like yes. that's a packet I'm excited about. Mike Judge. Yeah, I didn't. I never loved Beavis and Butthead because I was in high school and I felt like it was for boys. But <laughs> it just didn't speak to me in the same what way. What made you think that? but like king of the hill obsessed like i think he's made all these really incredible things so yeah 
So that happens maybe one out of 10 times. And then the other nine packets are people I already know are fucking dickheads. They've never made art I've cared about. Like, why would I want to work for them? Like, just to show my agent I can finish the packet. I can finish the packet. I'm funny. I'm a great writer. But what if I get it? Then I work for Jimmy Fallon. I just want to die. Um, And I think... Yeah, I mean, now that you really have me thinking about it and specifically that conversation with Bobcat, like I think I get hurt a lot by turning things down in a way that I feel proud of. But like, you know, an agent doesn't want you to be principled. They want you to try to get any lucrative job that you can. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. It's tough. Of course. So how has um, it been? I mean, the COVID, you don't have to sum up the whole COVID experience as a stand-up comedian, but obviously it came to a screeching halt. Is it beginning to open up again? Are, are you doing shows? What was your employment like on Zoom comedy and that kind of stuff? Did you do a lot of that stuff? Yeah. So at first I was saying no to Zoom shows, but not necessarily because I thought like they were bullshit, but um I just didn't feel it. I didn't feel funny. I didn't feel like I had I felt inappropriate to like early pandemic just be doing these jokes I had been doing for the last couple of years. So I wanted to make sure I had some new stuff written and I really I watched some Zoom shows and you know, people figured it out. I think early on things were rocky and it's such an awkward way to deliver comedy that you really have to have a producer and a host and comedians that are like all in pretending like we're at a show, right? Like we're acting basically because we know it's weird. And so if you don't have people doing that, then it just sucks and the audience hates it. And it's just a, and then you're just reminded that there's this terrible thing going on that like just telling jokes into our laptop doesn't feel right. Um, But speaking of shitty jobs, I really got into doing zoom corporates because you know, they can't stop me from making fun of the boss. <laughs> like, I have a contract. You have to pay me. Like, And so I found myself doing, first of all, it's, you know, if I can make $500 or $1,500 sitting in my kitchen, yeah, amazing. Like, I'm going <laughs> to do it because I lost all my work, right? Um, but then I kind of got into this sweet spot of like recognizing in each company, like if it was an internal corporate show, like who's the dickhead? Who's the boss? Everybody hates. You could kind of tell because sometimes these guys would heckle me like a man would just start talking in the middle of my jokes. And I'm like, oh, you're actually not in charge of this meeting. Um, And so I was just shit on him because he opened the door for me to. And then I see like, you know, I'm like, I bet you never let women talk in your meetings. And then I see like a lady take a sip of her little (laughs) martini (laughs) at home. I've gotten messages from these women later being like, oh, thank, thank God, you. like that guy's such an asshole. So I was really getting out some of my previous frustration from working in tech. That's amazing. And that was really fun. And then, you know, they do have to they do have to pay you, um, <laughs> especially if it's funny. Like, I'm still telling the jokes and making this good show. But like, sorry, sir. But if you want to interrupt or you think that you're funnier than me, like this isn't going to go yeah. well, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um. Other than that, it's, you know, I did like a lot of writing packets like we just discussed and um, worked on my own scripts and just cooked a lot and tried not to panic, watched a lot of movies. Um, 
you know, spent a ton of time with Adam, which was really nice. And, um, you know, that's like a time we'll never live again. I mean, right. I've been my boyfriend for six years, which is really hard to believe. Amazing. Yeah, I love it. But if you think about how much I've been on tour pre-COVID for like, we've probably been in the same room together for not even half that time. Yeah, you're a serious road dog comic. Yeah, I was out a lot. Um, but I think uh, and so the, so that's like a time I'll never, ever forget, you know. Um, but having live stand up removed was existentially very hard because and I'm very grateful to have representation and have these people who are like sending me auditions and stuff. I'm not complaining about the opportunities. Have I booked anything? Not really. <laughs> um, but if you're doing, you know, five auditions a week and submitting a couple writing packets or whatever it is, but then at night you're doing stand up, then it's like, well, I don't need to worry about this other stuff because I'm doing the job yeah. and, and I go out and people laugh and I'm writing and I'm creating and I feel blessed and satisfied and, you know, validated, of course, we sure, all want yeah. that. Um, and so removing that piece completely and then putting all everything into these weird self tape auditions and sending writing samples to people who have no context for who I am as a comedian or a person like that was very hard <laughs> because, you know, it's just like, Oh, they don't like me specifically, you know, and I rejection didn't... with none of the stage time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that was really tough. So I'm glad I'm doing outdoor shows and <clears throat> things are kind of opening up and I have, you know, my, uh, first indoor gigs in Fort Collins next month. Um, if you live in Colorado or anywhere near, <laughs> I'll be at the Comedy Fort, I think the second weekend in June. But that place is also rad. It's owned by a comedian. He did it right. He got totally fucked by... He was supposed to open in like February 2020 or something. This is the brand new place. Right? Yeah, it's a cool club that he was just like, what if we had a comedy club run by a comedian who's not like... First of all, David's funny. So if he did give himself stage time, it wouldn't be weird. A lot of a lot of club owners open the club because they failed as comedians <laughs> yeah. and now they can force themselves on stage, you know, um, so and book a diverse lineup and a book women to headline and like, you know, have the food be good. It's revolutionary. What an idea. <laughs> yeah. So if you live near Fort Collins, definitely check out comedy for it. Um, even if you don't come see me, like just go support the club. It's awesome. We probably have to wrap up so you can tell me to shut up. But a lot, even though, you know, we have this outlet uh, on stage and I'm happy to get back to live stand up, the club situation is also shitty in many ways, you know, and, and a lot of bookers are beholden to some very powerful CAA agent who says, if you headline this very unfunny white man, uh, we'll give you Dave Chappelle. You know, it's like uh, always this negotiation. This happens in music venues, too. Of course, you know, you can get the big band if you yeah, booking give the little guy a shot. Of course. Yeah. And that's very normal. But for comedy, that's why we sort of end up with a lot of club calendars that are a lot of mediocre white dudes, you know. And so I think for David and his team to um, do it not that way is so cool. Of course, many other comedians like Kyle Kinane, who 
he always says like people think I invented this and invent it. He learned it from punk. Uh, you know, he does. He tries to do rock clubs more than comedy clubs. And he yeah. did that for years because um, it's just, you know, you do one show or two shows and you're not like supporting this cycle of just the same people headlining for years and years without even new material. You know, there's no it's a restaurant and bar that happens to have comedy like these people don't give a shit about the art form yeah. or presenting good comedians to the I community. So, I was so shocked by that when I opened at Harvey's for like a comedian who was had jokes about the Bill Clinton administration. <laughs> and I was going like, there's no there's no scenario where this guy has not been doing this joke for 25 years, you know, yeah, or whatever. And you, I was just it blew my mind that any but that that was a real thing that there were people that just did the same hour for 20 yes. years, 15 years. And, and I opened for someone there who is actually quite beloved in Oregon. I won't say his name, uh, but I'll tell you after. But I remember like he said, oh, this shit's just so fucking depressing. And and I'm hosting. So I'm a very new comic. And I'm like, what do you mean? Comedy's so fun. Like, what an honor to be on stage. And he's like, yeah, I've been telling these same bits for 20 years. I'm just depressed. I I'm sick of doing this. And I was like why don't you write some new jokes and try that? You know, it was like the craziest idea uh, where he felt like he deserved more respect at that point, which maybe for his skill level 20 years ago, he did, but he's not, he hasn't done that creative work, you know? And, and it's like, if you're not happy doing this, then what the fuck is the point? We literally work in a joy profession. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, speaking of joy professions, what are what what do you want to direct people to in your uh, of your productions that you're involved with? AmyMiller.com. AmyMillerComedy.com. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, on Instagram, I'm Amy Miller Comedy. I do have some dates coming up in Fort Collins, and I'll be in San Diego. So I'm going to put those on my website. My podcast, Who's Your God? And then if you have access to Epics. <laughs> And you're interested in my childhood story. Um, I have a half hour special on epics uh, under unprotected sets, which is a series of I didn't name that uh, a series of half hour specials. That's 20 minutes stand up and 10 minutes of like interview us talking about our childhood. Basically, it's a really cool format. Is that Wanda Sykes? Is she the person behind that? She and her partner Paige, business partner Paige produced the first season the second season was not them the one that i did um but it was produced by the crew that did like uh um this is not happening and the degenerates and all these other cool comedy things so they're very good at telling a story um and yeah your podcast uh who's your god who's your god yeah and listen to jason's episode i will have links to all these things all these wonderful things you got it if you don't know Amy Miller's comedy. You got to check her out. She's one of my very favorite comics. I mean, absolutely. One of my favorite people and favorite stand-up comedians. Person first. Well, we should stay in touch better. (laughs) I mean, that's the whole reason I'm doing this podcast is give myself an excuse to talk to people I haven't seen in forever. It's hard, yeah. Because of this damn pandemic. Well, yeah, look at, uh, check out all Amy's stuff on YouTube. I mean, there's just so much funny stuff. You know, you're the first person I think of um, when I think of a true comic. You know, who does the work, mm. puts in the time, has the attitude and the spirit. And more than anything, you're just funny as fuck. Thanks, Jason. That's so nice. And I love that our like 
past has intersected in all these weird ways around punk. It's really cool. Of course. We're in the, you're in the family. We're in the family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love you, Amy. Thank you so much for doing my podcast. Love you too, for sure. My pleasure. That's right. I love Amy, and now you love Amy Miller, too. How could you not fall in love with her listening to that hour of talk? Solid Gold is the name of her most recent album, Who's Your God? Her podcast, amymillercomedy.com. Follow her, see her, check out her comedy all over the internet. She's absolutely the best. I love you. I love her. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Goodbye.